you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. John has been writing and explaining what he saw in his vision when he was invited into the very court, uh, the courtroom, the throne room, we should say, of heaven. And so we come to the uh, seventh chapter, beginning at verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And they heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this section of your word, and we desire to know what it means, Lord, and what you're saying both to the original recipients of it and what you're saying to us today from this passage. And Lord, we desire to know you as you've revealed yourself in your word and to know your word, Lord, as you've given it to us. So we pray that you would be with us and bless us. Open our understanding, we pray, and open your word to our understanding, that we might really know what you are saying in Scripture. And we pray you'd write your word in our hearts so that we wouldn't just be hearers, but 
by the grace of your Holy Spirit, we'd become effectual doers of your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here we are, chapter 7. Well, thank you, sir. Now, chapter 7, this is, doesn't take a whole lot of, you know, education to figure this one out. I went to, you know, I went to seminary and have trained all these years, so I can tell you that chapter 7 follows chapter 6, okay? You might not have caught that, all right? That's, uh, hopefully we get a little more than just that, right? Uh, but chapter 6 is important. They're all important, everything. Chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, these all go together, really. Um, the opening vision of chapter 5 is, none is worthy but the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to receive the scroll from the one who sits upon the throne. And so uh, once he's acknowledged and comes forth, then he goes and receives the scroll. It was written inside and out and sealed with seven seals from the hand of him who sits upon the throne, generally understood to be God the Father. So Christ receives this. The scroll is put into his hands. And so we see in chapter 6 as he begins to open the scrolls, Things happen. The first four are accompanied with the voices from the four living creatures that are before the throne, uh, the seraphim or whatever these majestic, beautiful creatures are in heaven that John saw. Each time a uh, seal is opened, one of the four living creatures says, Come and see. And so John says in verse 2 of 6, I looked and behold, a white horse. So he sees one going forth. He says, To conquer... um, Conquering and to conquer. So this one went forth victoriously. We find this, this individual on a white horse later in the book, and it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who's going forth. But someone said, well, is this the person of Christ? Well, let's go back and remember this is a symbolic book. So what we have here is a picture of the word of God, the gospel going forth. Yes, Christ sends forth the word. Is this a picture of him personally in his second coming doing this? No, this is him sending forth the word. The picture is, here's what's going to happen now. The word goes forth. It is Jesus Christ going forth with his church. As he said when he commissioned the apostles in the Gospel of Matthew and told them to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, he said, to observe all things whatsoever I've I've commanded you, And then the success of the Great Commission, the reason why it's guaranteed is the last statement that Jesus made. So then, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Christ is with his church. He's with his beloved ones who go forth as he calls them. And so, yes, it is Christ going forth, but it's with the picture of going forth through the Great Commission, I believe. But note, this one knows nothing but victory. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. Doesn't say he goes forth trying and to try, okay? Some would uh, maybe have to write that as far as our human efforts are concerned. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. But as we see, there's more seals to be broken. There's three more horsemen, and so the next one we see these are kind of scary. He opens the second seal, and one of the living creatures says, "Come and see." So. He says, another horse, fiery red, went out. And someone said, oh, this is the powers of hell and death and, you know, the fighting against Christ. Beloved, Christ is the one that broke the seal. 
This one is going forth at Christ's behest. You know, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules over the nations with a rod of iron, he said in the opening chapters of this book. He is Lord. Um, we can say with Scripture, he desires not the death of any man, but rather that he should repent. If men lose their souls, it's their own doing. God's grace is there. But here we see this fiery red horse goes out. And it was granted to one, to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. Well, the gospel goes forth. This is a picture of world history from the time of John. Really, I believe we're going to take it right up to the end. Uh, as he goes forth, he takes peace from the earth. The people should kill one another. We saw this last week. I just kind of want to go over this because it fits. We can't really get into seven without looking at this. So he has a great sword given to him. Then the third seal is opened, and I heard a third living creature. Note, the seal is broken. Who, who broke it? Who opened it? Christ. He's the one that sends forth this next judgment, saying, come and see. So where the gospel is rejected or resisted, we see this all through history. Where the gospel is rejected, what comes? Desolation and destruction, both for individuals and for nations. The Bible says that the, the wicked shall be cast into hell and all the nations that forget God. And so we see this being unfolded here. But the gospel has gone forth. By the way, there's nothing in chapter 6 that says, and when the horsemen returned, they said, etc. These horsemen are released. They're going, it's an ongoing, uh, I won't call it a ministry, but it's an ongoing effect in history. It's still going on. The white horse, the rider, is still going forth, conquering and to conquer. The red fiery horse is still going forth. We see this throughout history. Here we see the black horse in the, on the uh, third seal who sat on it. He had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius. That's a day's wage, all right? That was about, some have said it's anywhere from four to 20 times depending on how you understand ancient money and measurement of what was generally paid for a quart of wheat. In other words, famine. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. That's generally what was given to a, a Roman soldier for his rations for a day. So it's pretty expensive. You know, you think you've got to work all day to get food just for that day. Uh, then the, the command came forth, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So uh, literally do not deal unjustly with the oil and the wine. So there's scarcity, but there's still some supply. When you open the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse. Remember I mentioned the, the Greek word for pale there. It kind of means sickly green, okay? But pale is a good translation also. But it's not a healthy horse. Uh, and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades, or hell, followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So we see that their rejection of the gospel and the opposition that Christ's kingdom meets up with, uh, when, it, when judgment falls, it falls on those who are wicked. And we see here that a, a fourth of the earth is dealt with, with the sword and hunger and death. We saw in Ezekiel last week, God talks about sending forth his four plagues, okay? Um, and he does that with war and the sword and famine and wild beast and disease. So here this one goes forth again. Who opened the seal? It's Christ. 
You know, Jesus didn't open the seal and go, oh, what have I done? It's not like Pandora's box. Jesus is in control of this. And so he's sending out these judgments upon the world. We see this has happened all through history. It's ongoing. John received this in the first century, toward the end of the first century, so that the people of God would recognize when these things are ongoing in their generation not to faint. But recognize these things are going to happen. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to, when it says death in Hades, uh, death is sometimes understood as pestilence. Uh, but the idea is that the sword and hunger and death, all the things we've just looked at combined now continue to go forth. And by the beast of the earth, the wild animals. That could include you know, bears and mountain lions and snakes and you name it, whatever it is. Um, things increase and get bad and worse. Okay? It could also and should be understood spiritually. But we understand that the, you know, the powers of darkness, um, where, the, where light is rejected, the only thing's left is darkness. Now, we see those are the generally called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay? Apocalypse is the $2 word for the revelation. Okay? It comes from Greek, apocalypsis. But then he opens a fifth seal, and there's something very different. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. He sees in heaven the souls of those who had been slain under the altar. And as I mentioned last week, it means, first of all, it means they're close to God. They're at a place of worship. And if you're under the altar, you're under the place where the blood is sprinkled. So he sees these as being covered. You know, the, in the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word for atonement is the word uh, uh, for cover. Actually, it's very close to our English word. Um, so they have a covering. They're under the altar. And they cry out with a loud voice. We saw also last week. They don't rail against God. They don't accuse him of being unjust. They praise him. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true. In all of their sufferings, their martyrdoms. Note, these are the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So this is a picture in heaven of those who have died in faith. <coughs> They're acknowledging that God is holy and true. They love the Lord. They're not fighting against God. They recognize the injustice came from the sons of Adam, from the sons of men on earth. And they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We find this prayer is answered in the next seal. Then a white robe was given to each of them. That's coming up in chapter 7. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren would be, who would be killed as they were was completed. So they're told the full number is not yet completed. Be patient. There will be a reckoning. Chapter 6, verse 12, John says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So that means things shook up. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. <coughs> and the moon became like blood. So a very clear picture of judgment, of cities burning, um, of light being removed. It's, again, physically and spiritually, the idea of warfare and destruction, but there's the, the light is being taken away. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth. Now, clearly, it's symbolic language. This is not talking about all the stars in the universe falling on the earth. That wouldn't happen. But symbolically, he's saying that those, remember the stars that were in Christ's hands? Those were the angels of the churches. And some believe the, the, the ministers, uh, the leaders in the churches, possibly a reference to that. 
uh, where you have this great apostasy. But however it's understood, there's darkness. The stars of the heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This is a pretty clear picture of the final judgment when Christ returns. Uh, as Peter talks about in Second Peter chapter 3. And the kings of the earth, here we see all these, these great men that were stout against God, that persecuted his people, that slew those martyrs that we've just seen under the altar. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In all their wealth, and all their power, and all their glory of this world, they had no covering. Those who they violently slew and murdered, the, the martyrs of God, they were under the blood. These men have no covering, and so they cry out. They'd rather be crushed by the mountains, buried to the depths, than to have to stand before the holy God. And so they cry out, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb is the one who was slain for sinners, the one who died so that we could be forgiven. Now they face him in his wrath because they have rejected him. And it's too late. They've turned their backs on him. And then they ask a question. They say, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Good question. They're not able to stand. Psalm 1 tells us uh, the wicked shall not stand in judgment uh, because they have no covering. They have no standing before God. They're stricken with an eternal terror. All they have to look forward to is the lake of fire and a conscious suffering torment throughout eternity in the presence of the Lamb. So then we come to chapter 7. We'll briefly consider what's here. After these things, again, now John says, so this, he sees this, which I believe is a panoramic view of history from John's day until the second coming. He says, and after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So this judgment is happening, and he says, now he sees something else, and it seems we're going to see almost a repeat of this, but from a different perspective, I believe. They're holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. That's something that's necessary to sustain life. You know, we don't think about it much, but without the wind and the, the you know, you have the moon and currents and, and tidal things, you know, on the, on the seas. We don't think much about that, but without any wind, you begin to lose uh, pollination and the air doesn't move and it's really bad. And we're also told in verse 2 that these, those angels were granted to harm the earth and the sea. So withholding the winds is a judgment. They're getting ready to do it, um, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw, and by the way, some understand this as a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit, that you know, as, who is like the wind in John 3. Remember Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wants to. You will hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, the word spirit in Greek and in Hebrew um, those are both um, words that can mean spirit, or they can actually mean wind also, okay, used in a different context. Uh, pneuma in the New Testament and ruach in Hebrew, both can mean wind. So some have said this could be a reference that the, 
day of grace is coming to an end or has ended here. But before this happens, note this, before this stopping of the wind, whether we understand this purely symbolical, meaning that there's some greater truth behind it, because remember chapter 1, verse 1, says he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And that word signified in Greek is sameo, and it means to show by signs. So whether it's just pure symbolism in reference to the day of grace will have ended, which I think there's good reason perhaps to understand it that way, because the very next thing is don't do this until all the servants of God have been sealed, whether it's that or it's actually a reference to some physical judgment of the wind ceasing. Um, we'd have to do a little farther searching, but I think we're pretty clear to see here that it's clearly that the day of grace is coming to an end, in my opinion, on this. So another angel, though, ascending from the east, comes from the area, you know, where, what, what, why is the east mentioned? Well, that's where the light arises. Remember, it says in Malachi, to those that, that fear the Lord, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And that's the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, it says in Malachi. And so he, this angel comes from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So he's saying the day of grace isn't going to end until the full number of the elect have been drawn in. And so he then goes forth. And there's no argument there. He just says, hold off. Don't do this yet. There's work to be done. And then John says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And he names off the tribes, 12,000 from each. 144,000, that's 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000, being a number of completeness and fullness. So the question comes up, how should we understand this? Is it a reference to the elect from among the physical descendants of Abraham? There's reason to say that. Um, But do note, it's not saying, or it's not said to be the election of Israel but rather the elect chosen out of the tribes of Israel, of the 12 tribes. Not all Israel's going to be saved, as, as Paul said. Um, in Romans 11, he says in reference to the Hebrew or the Jewish people, he says, even so at this present time, there isn't a remnant through the election of grace. What then, he says in Hebrews 11, excuse me, Romans 11, 7. What then, Israel hath not obtained what he sought, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest have been hardened. So, is it a reference to the elect among the Jewish people or the Hebrew people? Because notice, it's the 12 tribes. The reason I mentioned a distinction, I've mentioned it before, you know, the term Jewish actually comes from the tribe of Judah. It's now used as a generic term from, for anyone of Hebrew origin, whether they were of the tribe of Judah ancestrally or not. Uh, but biblically, you have it, you know, if someone's Jewish, it can mean Hebrew but generally Hebrew or Israel is used, meaning all of the tribes. So uh, these are all from, from all 12 tribes. But there's some interesting things. You know, Dan is not mentioned here, but he's not mentioned also in Chronicles because they had apostatized. Joseph is mentioned instead of Ephraim. Um, Manasseh, his son, is mentioned. So there's some interesting things about this that seem to be pointing that maybe there's something other here than just the physical descendants. So it could be that. That is all the elect out of the physical descendants of Abraham. 
good reason to think that if you read Romans 9, 10, 11. But also it could be understood as a symbolical picture of the, the full number of the elect from both Jews and Gentiles on the earth being viewed as the Israel of God. Uh, Paul makes reference to that in Hebrew, Galatians rather, chapter 6, um, at verse 16. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace shall be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. So he makes reference and says there, there's you know, the physical Israel and then there's the Israel of God. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. So he's saying it outward meaning physical descent, not according to the flesh. Uh, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh... But he is a Jew which is one within, or inwardly, and the circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So generally we can say, well, is this a reference, these 144,000, to all of God's elect as the true Israel of God? And I think that's probably correct. So that means, well, then when we come to verse 9 and you have this vast, innumerable multitude, is this a different group of people? I'm persuaded that, no, it's the same group of people being viewed now um, as more direct, you might say. What, what does this, these 12,000 who were sealed, 144,000 among God's people, and then he sees a vast multitude. Now, some say, well, no, those are the Gentiles, the others are the Jews. That may very well be it. We're not going to argue that. The one thing we see here is this is the full number of the elect. You do have to note that it doesn't say out of every tribe of Israel there were chosen 11,999 because one guy didn't you know, exercise his free will and cooperate, or there was 11,972 or something like that, or there were 12,442 because there were a few more willing people, etc. This is letting us know God has his elect. It's a fixed number. God is in control. He is sovereign. People, some people don't like that. They don't, well, you mean God's sovereign. I get to choose my, my, what about my free will? What about your free will? You don't have a free will. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You say, well, I made a choice for Jesus. You wouldn't have done that unless the Holy Spirit had regenerated you and given you faith. Give God the glory. This idea that man's got to do his part. Man is passive in salvation. Christ raised us from the dead. When people want to fight against God's sovereignty and his glory, it shows, I think, some real wickedness in the heart and pride. Well, I made my decision for Jesus. Well, good for you. You don't understand what grace is then. Grace is where you have someone locked in a prison, chained up, wrapped up, sitting at the bottom of a well full of water, dead. And Jesus Christ calls them forth, removes the chains, brings them into life. He saves them. Salvation is of the Lord. Get over yourself and give God the glory. Okay? Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Someone says, well, they didn't burn in that, for in that furnace because they chose not to. Really? I thought it had something to do with the fourth one that was among them uh, that kept them alive and preserved them. It wasn't their free will. It was God's grace. They stood up. So say, well, well, I did make a choice. Yes, you did. We choose Jesus, and we thank God that he gave us grace to do that. 
I believed in Jesus. I made a decision. Praise God. The Holy Spirit gave you the grace to do that. But please don't think that God owes you something because of something you did. That's blasphemy. By grace are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. There's 144,000. That number's not less and it's not more. It's predetermined by God, written down here symbolically for us, I believe, for the full number of God's elect. Paul the Apostle put it very, very plainly. The passage is in, I believe, uh, 1 Timothy, when he said, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That first part about election, don't tie yourself up in a knot. If you believe in Jesus, I had a friend who was, you know, he was struggling with it. He said, I don't want to be presumptuous and say I'm really a believer. I don't know if God's elected me, etc. And finally, I just said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. We're still friends, by the way. <laughs> okay. um, I said, do you love Jesus? No, actually, what I asked him was negative. I said, do you hate Jesus? He said, no, of course not. I love the Lord. And I said, well, you can't, do, you can't love Jesus unless you're born again. Okay? I said, if you love Jesus, you're saved. Okay? Because that's not something you do. If your heart's been changed, you know who he is. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. I said, so stop running around saying, oh, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Well, if you're dealing, if you've got sin in your life you're not dealing with, okay, you have reason to doubt it. Peter said, make your calling and election sure. Okay, in other words, pursue God for holiness. Ask him to help you. All right? But if you believe in Jesus, I don't care how weak you are, it's not your hand grip on him that's holding you. It's his grip on you. And Jesus said nobody can take one of his beloved ones out of his hand or the Father's. You're safe. You need to recognize that. So if you say, well, I do believe in Jesus, but I'm really unworthy. Who isn't? There was only a, did you not catch chapter 5? <laughs> There's none worthy but the Lamb. He gets all the glory, all the praise, all the thanksgiving. So if God humbles you because of your sin and you're feeling dejected and down, that's okay. Sometimes he does that for us, not just to us, so that we learn to trust him and see the preciousness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And understand that wretches that we are, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. And he's not leaving us in that condition. He's at work. He's, remember what it says in Matthew one twenty one, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Yeshua, Savior. For he shall save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus is doing. He knows you're not worthy. It's his worth. It's his righteousness. And it's his work. And he will work in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So we have this picture here, okay, of God's people. And so the 144,000, I believe, is probably a symbolic picture of the true Israel of God. And notice the number is complete. All the armies of Israel are gathered but these are the ones that, that struggle also. They're on the earth, remember, because the judgments were getting ready to fall. Why hasn't Christ returned? If you'll turn to Second Peter, we we'll do need to look at that because there's some pretty important text there that relates to this. We see here that the, the angels were not to hold off the winds until the full number of God's elect had been sealed. All the servants of God. So in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, he touches on the same thing here. This is somewhat of an apocalyptic uh, chapter. 
So Peter writes, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, the beloved. This first epistle is addressed to the elect throughout Pontius and Galatia. He says, To stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now note verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, know what they're going to be saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now that's the theme of this section. Okay, This is what the, the scoffers are going to say. Where is the promise of his coming? This is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4 I just read. For they go continue, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation, or of creation. Well, that's not true, is it? There was once a worldwide judgment, and Peter reminds us of that. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So he's saying they're willfully ignorant. They're going to come up with all kinds of strange theories, like a old earth, and say that though there was no flood, um, and they're going to say that nothing has ever happened. You know, that's the doctrine of uniformitarianism that's taught as science, or at least as it has been. Um, and so Peter says the world that then existed was destroyed. God has already jo- uh, judged this world one time, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's what we read about at the end of chapter 6, I believe, in Revelation. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God has his time schedule for these things. And then this verse 9, which is one of the most misquoted, taken out of context verses, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Okay, some say, oh, well, that's the promise of salvation. Uh, No, it's not. The context is the promise of the coming of Christ. Peter's saying the Lord's not slack concerning his promise. That's what's being talked about. Take it in context. Okay, the Bible is its best interpreter. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but but is long-suffering toward us. Who's he writing to? The beloved, the elect. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's saying the same thing we just read in Revelation chapter 7. Because look what he says the very next verse. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, like a scroll being rolled up, it says. And the, uh, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter's talking about the second coming of Christ. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. He's saying Jesus hasn't returned yet because the full number of the elect have not yet been brought in. Because if it's talking about everybody that's ever lived, then Jesus can never come back because not everyone has been saved. God has a purpose in history. So now we go back to Revelation. We see that once they're all sealed, he looks again. He says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That would include the Hebrew people, 
standing before the throne. That certainly answers the question at the end of uh, chapter 6, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Right there's your answer. Chapter 7, verse 9. He saw them standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who's able to stand? Those that believe in Jesus. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Clothed with white robes. They've got the righteousness of Jesus given to them. With palm branches in their hands. That's celebration and worship. This is a happy crowd here. Chapter 6, it wasn't a happy crowd. It was men crying out for the mountains to fall on them because they turned their back and scoffed at God. But this group here, these are the ones that Christ has redeemed by his precious blood. And they're crying out with a loud voice. They're noisy worshipers. Nothing wrong with that, as long as it's in good order and according to God's word. Crying out with a loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to our God. Whose salvation? Theirs. They're saying, it's God's. He did it. He gets all the glory. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, Jesus, the Son of God. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne in worship, saying, and note the sevenfold ascription of praise here, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. The fullness, you know, seven is also a number of completion. Remember the seven days of creation, the seven churches, the seven candlesticks, all, that, all the things we've seen so far. Here we see this sevenfold blessing and praise to God. They're not making God these things. They're acknowledging that this is his. This is who he is. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, uh, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? So, good question. Um, And we see kind of a very nice congenial conversation between John and one of the uh, uh, elders that he saw there. And I said to him, Sir, you know... So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now some say, oh, well, that's the seven years before Jesus comes back. I don't believe that's taught in the Bible, okay, because they take Matthew 24. that does have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and completely skewer it. What is the great tribulation? What did we read about elsewhere in Scripture? Jesus said, um, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now some who uh, hold a dispensationalism will say, ah, but it says the tribulation. See, that's got the definite article. Well, if you go back and look at chapter 1, when John writes, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, please note, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was experiencing the tribulation. What is it? Life in this world as a believer. All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, will there be an intensification of of bad things? Yes, Revelation talks about it at the end. After Satan's let loose, he goes out and stirs up the nations and they encircle the camp. Then fire comes down. That is the camp of the saints. So there's much going on. But this isn't a uh, short period of time. I believe this is a reference to history. What he's seeing is the redeemed, those who were sealed by God, saved during the time from the beginning of the preaching of the gospel, or one sense you could say from the beginning of time itself, up until the second coming. Because this takes it right to the same place chapter 6 did, except this is from the view of heaven and the redeemed. 
So he says, these are those who, note, they've, they've come out of, great, out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A lot of hymns have been written on that passage. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. They're in heaven and they're happy. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. It also can mean to feed them. Will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When does that happen? Well, on the day when we give an account of ourselves, you know, you will give an account before Christ. There will be tears shed. You're going to look at all the missed opportunities, all the foolishness that we gave ourselves to in this life. All the things we could have done, it's now past, and there will be tears. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because our sins are forgiven and he loves us so we uh, can have peace. So Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, one, we see election is specific and certain. Secondly, redemption is specific and certain. Those that God chose, you know, whom he predestined, those he also uh, justified, or he called, rather, whom he called, them he also justified in Romans chapter 8. Uh, there were, as I mentioned, there were 12,000 from each tribe, not uh, a lesser number nor a greater number. Those who are saved have their salvation and cleansing from the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and from no other source. He alone is the Savior of his people. Notice it doesn't say that they made their, uh, their robes white through various religious ceremonies and different beliefs. Uh-uh, through the blood of the Lamb. They made their, their robes white, that's verse 14, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's only one way to be forgiven and cleansed, is through Jesus Christ. Those who are saved will be filled with gratitude of worship and in praise. In Psalm 107, 2, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I love that verse. That's Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And then finally, that last statement about God wiping every tear away, or, uh, wiping away every tear from their eyes. If we go to God with our tears, he will come to us with his comforts. And so we can go to him. At all times, when our hearts are sad, we can go to him. He'll wipe away the tears. This is application now. This is, some might say, well, that's talking about in heaven eternity. Beloved, God had it written so you on earth could read it and know that's the kind of God you serve. He loves you. And he has redeemed you with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You don't need to be afraid of anything this world throws at you. You don't need to be afraid of your own struggles and your own failures. God loves you. He's not going to give you up because Jesus Christ died and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for this passage. And, Lord, we do pray that you help us to remember it and recognize that you do have a vast multitude that no man could number. So help us to get the word out, Lord. Help us to speak to others and not be afraid. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are going forth through your church and through, because of the Great Commission. And we, we thank you, Lord, that you are conquering and, and you have conquered, Lord, and you will. So we thank you. And we thank you also, Lord, that you've delayed the final judgment until the full number of your elect have been called in. Uh, Lord, had you returned before our birth, we wouldn't have existed. Or had you come before we were saved, Lord, we would have been damned. So we thank you for holding back, Lord, your judgments until your church is complete. And we thank you for making us part of your church. 
So keep us now, we pray, and bless us, and we commit these things into your hands, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.